0: Fall is a spectacular time of year. The leaves are changing, the days are cooling down, and it's also the time of year that we have our Achieving Optimal Health Conference. It's such a fun day where we can reconnect with ourselves and with each other.
1: It really is great. By the end of it, we feel so energized and inspired. I hope all of you listening are planning to join us because we love spending the day with all of you.
0: Go to our website, AchievingOptimalHealthConference.com for all the details and to get your ticket.
1: People are yearning for information, having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire
0: people. It's amazing to be able to say, we'll carve out time to take
1: care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. We are so happy that Mike Ott is joining us on Health Geek today. In July of 2019, Mike sustained a spinal cord injury and was initially quadriplegic. He was told he might be able to walk in a year. Mike beat his prognosis through dedicated training and went on to walk, run, return to sports, and travel extensively. You will be so inspired by Mike's story. Welcome, Mike, to Health Geek. Yes, Mike, thanks for being on Health Gig.
2: Thank you for having me. Thrilled to be here.
1: I think we should say from the start that Mike is the son of a very good friend of ours named Grace Ott, who we've done some work with, who we are enormous fans of. So we're absolutely thrilled, Mike, that you're with us. And you've been through something horrendous. And can we just begin by telling our listeners what it is you've been through?
2: Sure. And I'd say sort of horrendous and amazing and informative and educational all at the same time. But, you know, just a brief bit of background. I grew up incredibly fortunate with great parents. You mentioned you knew and went to a great school, Washington Lee, and started my career in the financial field and had a, a long run at a good firm and then took a risk and went to a startup and was sort of, you know, on the up and up. And then one day left for a trip to go see some friends and take a weekend off in the summer and dove in shallow water and broke my neck. And immediately, um, you know, you heard this thud was the only sensation. Oh. Any sort of feeling or movement below the neck was gone. Um, and obviously you're underwater. And at that point, my life took a different turn.
0: Ah, oh, What did the accident feel like? You said you heard the I mean, was it an immediate with their sensations?
2: It was very bizarre. So it's sort of like your body immediately goes to heaven and your head's kind of the only thing left on earth. I mean, anything below the chin, you can't move or feel. And so you're kind of just there in the water. And initially, it registers pretty quickly what happened, right? Because you hear the noise and then you can look down through this murky water and see your arms not moving. And You're thinking, okay, uh, there's no way out of this for me. And you start thinking about, you know, this could be my last 30 seconds on Earth and go through that whole process.
1: Oh, my God. Who was there to find you or help you?
2: So thankfully, I was with some good friends um, that I'd known for a very long time, and you know they knew immediately what happened, and and I sort of couldn't see them or hear anything or feel anything, obviously, and so I don't know exactly what's going on, but one of them said he felt you know sort of guided from above and walked into the water. And they very kind of slowly and methodically turned me over. And thankfully, as soon as they got me breathing, also kept me floating in the water, which was my first piece of good luck out of about a million that I needed to get to where I am today. And they stabilized me and called the ambulance.
0: How did they get you breathing? Yeah. Did you stop breathing?
2: So I was still breathing. After surgery, I was on a ventilator for quite some time. But initially after the accident, I was still able to breathe.
0: They just knew what to do. And they came in and you said they gently turned you over. So you're up above water and you could breathe.
2: Yes. And you're just laying there immobile, sort of looking at the stars and waiting for help to come. And one of the people there had a guitar. So he played a few songs.
0: Oh, wow. So they really were calm and no one was panicking and they just knew what to do? Huh.
2: I would say so. And even myself also, I initially had no idea that you could be quadriplegic and then come out of it or anything about incomplete spinal cord injuries, which was what had happened to me. But I remember laying there and just thinking, I need to now be the best friend and family member that I can be and still make the absolute most of this life that I have. And it's going to be different. Oh. But this is my new starting point.
0: Oh, my gosh. Wow. So this is all going through your mind. This is happening. And then the ambulance comes and they take you to the ICU. Yes. And where was this? Sorry. What hospital?
2: You're uh, going to University of Maryland shock trauma, which was an incredible hospital. So this happened sort of between the Baltimore and D.C. area. And that was another enormous stroke of luck that I was next to a world class hospital with some of the best surgeons in the world for these types of issues. and. Wow. It's incredibly important to get into surgery as quickly as possible because your vertebrae are broken in your neck. There's damage being caused to the spinal cord. So every minute counts. They take me in, they initiate the trial protocol, and I'm sort of starting to lose consciousness at this point. But people come and they test each limb and they kind of, you know, try and pull against you and, and say like, okay, you know, is there any force that he can exert whatsoever? And there's just nothing. It's all completely limp.
1: Were you feeling nothing from the neck down? Just you couldn't feel?
2: nothing from the neck down and you're totally immobilized. And so they would try and say, okay, you know, flex your foot or flex this finger or lift your leg. And it, it was just zero, 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 zero. And that's what's getting documented in my notes. And then they ran an MRI and they said, you know, we think surgery is your best bet. Do you want to get in there? And I said, yes, right away. Let's go.
0: At that point, were you given a prognosis?
2: They didn't go into prognosis at all prior to surgery. They just said, we need to get in there now." and after surgery you wake up you don't really remember a distinct moment of coming out you're on a ventilator you're on a feeding tube you know you can't lift a finger you can't breathe you can't eat you can't scratch an itch on your forehead you just start to feel pain start to come back the only thing the surgeon said to my parents initially when i was in that state was you better get ready this is gonna be a long haul and that was it about a week later they kind of pulled my parents aside and they said you know we think that surgery went well and we want to let you know, you know, we think he might be able to walk in a year. So that's sort of what I was told initially.
0: So can you tell us again, you broke your neck. So what happened? It was a, would you call it an incomplete spinal cord injury?
2: Yes. So it was a C5 fracture, the fifth vertebrae in your neck. And then there was damage above and below C5 as well. And they went in and removed different parts of C3 all the way down through six.
0: Oh.
2: Those were taken out and C3 through six on my neck now are all titanium. Oh. And that preserves what was left of the spinal cord and allowed for the recovery that I have today.
0: Wow, like you said, so lucky you were near this trauma center. Yes. And you said every minute counts, right? So if somebody's out someplace and they have to helicopter them someplace and someplace else, you're losing time.
2: Sure. You hear stories all the time. And I've met so many people along this journey, but someone that had the same accident in Bali or something or, you know, a remote location and they don't get into surgery quick enough and, and the window closes and more damage takes place and you have a worse outcome.
0: So your parents are told a week after surgery that you might be able to walk.
2: They were. I was told nothing. And so I was sort of kept in the dark because, you know, they don't want to get your hopes up and you're still kind of fading in and out of consciousness. I mean, I was hallucinating. I was just sort of trying to stick with the program and do what they were telling me. Were
0: you just so scared? Was it just fear? What was it?
2: It's a whole mix. Uh, Initially, there was just so much pain that that's really all you can focus on.
0: How do you have pain if you don't feel things?
2: It starts to return.
0: Okay, okay. So
2: thankfully, once they did the surgery and kind of got in there after a few days, it started to return and you have pain in the area sort of above the surgical site was where it begins, right? Because they have to cut this monstrous incision in the back of your neck. And so that's what really hurts. I remember this feeling of just like someone was stabbing a knife into the back of your neck over and over and over again. I've had broken bones and surgeries and other things before, but this was another level.
1: What was the next step? Then what happened once you've had the surgery? How long before you start any kind of rehab?
2: So they try and do what they can in intensive care, but they're really not set up to rehab you at all. And so the next thing that they determined after surgery was you need to go to a place that can do inpatient rehab for you, where they can work with you three hours a day. You live in the hospital, they take care of your every need, and that's going to give you the best shot to actually get moving again. And so Intensive care was an amazing environment. I had tons of family and friends come out to visit. And eventually you kind of get like a smile on your face. And, you know, I had some amazing laughs and it was a little bit like attending your own funeral, but then it got very bleak trying to navigate the whole system of getting to inpatient rehab. And you're sitting there thinking, okay, I got this surgery and I feel in my body like I have a chance to do this. You know, I hadn't been told anything, but I kept saying, I want to have a full recovery. I'm going to get out of this somehow. And then you start to feel that slip away a little bit with the insurance approvals and things getting held up in process. And then chaos broke out in Baltimore. There was a pretty severe wave of violence that took place that held up a lot of paperwork. And then the insurance company themselves seems to be just continuously denying. And so a big part of me felt like I was never going to get there. And then eventually you do. And that was a total game changer and another huge stroke of luck where I was able to get to Spalding Rehab in Boston, which was one of the best places in the world yeah. to try and do you these know, recoveries.
0: So what time frame is this now? How long were you in ICU? Two weeks. Two weeks. And then you moved to Spalding. Correct. Got it. Okay. What time of year was it? When was it? What was the date?
2: This was summer. So this was late July, July 27th, 2019. And by the time you're being moved to Spalding, it's mid-August.
0: Okay. So now you're in Spalding. Your parents have been with you by your side. You mentioned beginning that your mom didn't leave your side.
2: Yes. She slept in my hospital room 25 of the first 30 nights that I was in the hospital.
1: Wow. And then
2: eventually, you know, allowed herself to go to a hotel. But parents, I mean, there were people in there constantly. And my heart goes out to anyone who's had to deal with something like this during COVID, where you're not able to have that kind of support present with you because that made an enormous difference to me. Oh,
1: man. Yeah. God.
0: So, all right. So, you moved to Spalding and what's it like there learning to move again? That was the whole purpose, right?
2: Yeah. So, it's kind of like end of life care in reverse, if you can picture that. And so, you're flown up to Spalding on this tiny little jet and you get there and you still can't really do anything. I mean, I could kind of, you know, lift my right foot a little bit and my right arm a little bit, but that was it. Everything else was still pretty much a zero. My right leg would move a little bit, but that was it. You know, you could sort of lift your toe and and foot off the bed, but they settle you into a room and then they use these lifts and they take a crane and pull you out of your bed after people sort of turn you on a harness and they set you down in a wheelchair. And then they take you down in a wheelchair to this incredible gym where they have everything you could possibly need, harnesses, therapists, experts. And they basically begin just trying to get you to stand up and they'll kind of hold you on either side and yank you out of a wheelchair would be the first way to get going. And so I'll never forget some of those initial times just standing on my own two feet um, with a ton of help and support, you know, you're doing maybe 5% of the work and then you progress to hanging from a harness and then walking bars and then a walker and it just happens very, very gradually. And then, know, yeah, everyone pictures paralysis and they think about legs and walking, but the bigger thing for me and for a lot of people was hands um, and being able to use your fingers and having that dexterity. And- you look at surveys of people that have had spinal cord injuries. The number one thing that people really want back is actually use of their hands. And so for me, you're just sitting there gritting your teeth, trying to move like a finger, and you're getting nothing back. You know, you want to be able to scratch an itch. You want to be able to lift, to fork them out, to feed yourself. Oh, yeah. And so you know, eventually, bit by bit, that came back. But you know, it, it took a couple of months before I could tie a shoelace. And when I could, that was 90 minutes of pretty agonizing work just to reach out and tie a shoe.
0: I imagine the people that were with you at Spalding were just amazing. I think you were saying the care there was just remarkable.
2: Absolutely incredible. I mean, that's one of the sort of pieces of advice that I give to survivors or really to anyone in life in general is just to surround yourself with the people in places that bring out your best. And Spalding was that for me, where just the energy there and the expertise and the environment really brought out your best every day and gave you what you needed to show up and work your tail off for those three hours.
1: Were there other people at Spalding that you connected with and that were going through something similar?
2: Yes. So the entire floor that I was on was spinal cord injuries and you bonded with a lot of those people as they came and went. And it's funny what a small world it became. I mean, there was even somebody who I knew who was a family friend that wound up there for a different reason that you see in the gym. It became a very tight knit environment and those people sort of became your family. I and mean, I still remember and visit all the nurses and doctors and people there. It really becomes an incredible community that I've held on to to this day.
0: They're going through it with you, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. And you're completely dependent on them and they're there for you and you don't know what's going on in their lives and everyone has stuff that they're dealing with, but they're showing up and giving you their absolute best too, with a smile on their face and the enthusiasm that you need to push through.
0: Wow. wow and how long were you there how long were you in spalding
2: about 2 months
0: were you able to do everything after the 8 weeks
2: no so it's sort of very linear i would say to get physically, you know, where I felt strong and playing sport and traveling and doing all the things that I'm doing now, it took two years and I still live with a ton of limitations and pain and a lot of things that people don't necessarily see. But what will typically happen with inpatient rehab is it's very expensive for the commercial insurance. And so they'll get you out of there as quickly as possible. If you can kind of live in any sort of modified way, they'll move you on pretty quickly. And one of the things that they said when I was being discharged was, you know, get ready for the hard part. And I'm thinking, you know, what are you talking about? I just, I, you know, I just learned to walk 10 steps on my own after living through all this pain and going through intensive care. And then you do realize you get out of the real world and it's still a tough place. And all of a sudden, you have to navigate on your own, and you don't really have resources available through insurance that are adequate to get to where I wanted to be. You go from this incredible place in Spalding to basically the company saying, you know, you get 45 minutes three times a week. And that wasn't going to do it for me for where I wanted to go. And so you have to build your own routine, you have to find a place to live, you have to get back home. We were in Boston, my apartment was in New York City. My job had decided that they needed somebody else to do my role right away. So my position was filled and I didn't have work to go back to. And so that all happened in a very short period of time as well. And um, that was pretty chaotic.
0: Whoa. You know, you've mentioned a couple of times being in the healthcare system at the various stages. So it was challenging, is I guess what you're saying, right?
2: Yes. It certainly felt Byzantine at certain points. And when you're the one laying there in pain and not getting what you need, those time frames feel a whole lot longer. And just tracking down what you needed was difficult as well. And I felt like I had to get resourceful and also lucky and just be open-minded and talk to a lot of people to eventually find the resources that I needed.
1: When you were discharged, where was your mind? what were you feeling? Tell us about that process.
2: You're still focused on just what you can do in the next minute and the next day. I would say for me, I had that stated goal of a full recovery and I still do. But there's this line that I love from a poem by Rudyard Kipling, if that's very well known, if you can turn the unforgiving minute into 60 seconds worth of distance run. And that was sort of what I was trying to do is you just get through what you need to that day and try and get A half a percent better that day and those things will add up and so it was challenging trying to do all that but i was in a mindset that was you know a very experimental i'm just gonna go try everything i'm gonna hire trainers i'm gonna go to yoga i'm gonna get acupuncture when i'm tired and can't move and i'm laying there and then i'm gonna keep track of all that was another huge thing is i'm gonna write it down every day because there are some days where you wake up and you feel demoralized you don't want to do it or you're exhausted or whatever and Keeping track of that every day kept me honest, saying, okay, here's the goal that I set out for. I know what I need to do to give myself the best shot. Zero guarantees that it's going to happen, but I'm going to control my input and let go of the outcome.
0: So, COVID was so hard for so many people in so many different ways, but for you, you experienced it. <laughs> I can't even imagine. <laughs> so, how did that go for you? I mean, lockdowns, you couldn't be with people. That- At what point did that happen in your recovery?
2: So quite literally, you're nine months out, uh, you know, post-accident, right? And I'm sort of at the point where you can go to the grocery store and push a cart around and maybe, you know, grab a roll of toilet paper off the shelf and check out and buy it. And all of a sudden, there's no toilet paper, right? And everything's closed. I had put together this whole routine that was working very well for me with a great group of therapists and neurologically focused pts in miami and yoga and had all these people in this network and it was all going great and then all of a sudden that gets thrown out the window right exactly and so you need to start again and what i sort of say about covid is it changed everything but the end goals and so you stay focused on what you want and you keep working but you have to change the entire methodology and so i was very lucky that i went with my family to maine where we have a beautiful place and a lot of relatives and in that way you know it at least provided a safe space in covid but i still had to make it up entirely from there so you go from all these great resources that i had where you're training next to mba players to being in maine by yourself and training with your grandmother's trainer in her basement and saying okay how do i cobble something together now and one of the things that i'll never forget about that summer or the primary thing i'll never forget about that summer was having that goal of still wanting to run again and this is a year out at this point and i had been fixated on that and had been trying and trying and trying to no avail and i asked around i said does anyone up here know a track coach that might be local and it turns out through enough networking i found the number of somebody and he decided to meet me at the track one day and he's like let's see what we're working with and i sort of you know stumbled a hundred steps out there and he's like okay (laughs) this is gonna be interesting but we'll try so i worked with him and we just tried bit by bit and you embrace that same incremental process that you use just get to the next step get to the next step just get that half a percent better and there were quite a few falls on that track it was dirt thankfully um so it's a little bit more forgiving but um, you know, you just try and jog five steps, try and jog 10, the same way that you would try and walk 10 when you're in Spalding, you're just trying to get a little bit of footlift and just take it from there.
0: I know there were rough days, really rough days. We can't even, I'm sure we can't even even imagine what they were like, but did you ever think you could do this? I mean, I mean, before pre, did you ever think you had it in you? Like, I mean, clearly you're a disciplined person. Clearly you brought to this new phase of your life good habits or something. I mean, you, do you know what I mean? Like, can you, are you amazed at yourself <laughs> as amazed as we are with you? Or is this like, okay, this is how I look at things.
2: Well, one of these things with these huge accents, and this is pretty well documented, they don't necessarily change your life or change your personality or alter your brain chemistry. It reveals a lot of what was there beforehand. Um, but I would say it goes back to intensive care. And I, you know, didn't know what was going on at all. And then I got my ventilator out and I was able to just get a breath of fresh air. Wow. You know, that's amazing. And
0: what does the ventilator feel like?
2: You know, I don't particularly remember. Um, you get a really sore throat and then when it comes out, you're like, whoa, I am so happy to have that out of there. I remember being in intensive care and and going, you know, back to this moment where I was playing in the lacrosse tournament in Mexico City. And this had been, you know, maybe four years prior to my accident. I had this dream while I was asleep for the first time in several days. And I was running around and, you know, being the full athlete that I was beforehand. I woke up and I thought, well, maybe it's in there somewhere. And for whatever reason, I just felt that, you know, this little bit of movement that I could get lifting my foot off the bed or, or, lifting my arm off the bed. I can just get the next thing. And so that was really my focus.
0: Right. Focusing on what you can do. So you were an athlete. So you played lacrosse?
2: I was. I played college lacrosse. I was running a 520 mile the day of my accident. I'd always been kind of focused on taking good care of myself. But I would say the goals got more and more specific. And as you do in life, you set them as you go. And so first it was just to try and move Anything that you can, you're just gritting your teeth and fighting. And then you're trying to walk and trying to run and trying to travel and do the next thing.
0: What you're saying is so amazing because it really is all we can do, right? Right. I mean, do the very next thing and build on the very next thing.
2: You can only focus on what you can control. You can't control pandemics. You can't control insurance denials. You can't control if you didn't sleep the night before, but you can control the way that you approach that moment.
1: Yeah. You are so resourceful and motivated. I can't imagine everyone has the same motivation you do. What would be your best advice for someone who's going through the same thing, who might not have the same, as Tricia said, discipline or motivation that you have?
2: So I would say one thing that was actually incredibly important to me in the beginning was getting out there and just sharing your story. And so I had a very good friend and my mom that worked together to set up this CaringBridge website that blasted out the message of like, hey, here's what's going on with Mike. And it takes a village. I mean, you can talk about, you know, my motivation and me showing up, but I needed everyone in my life to cheer me on and help me along the way as well. So tapping into that. And then you do have to stay positive. I mean, some of the best resources that I encountered, I found this place Barwis in Florida that trains almost exclusively people with spinal cord injuries and pro athletes. And the way that I found it was just by Sitting next to some people at the beach and telling them my story. And if you're sort of in a dark place or bad thought process or not willing to open up and talk to people about what's going on, then you're going to cut yourself off from those resources. And then, you know, the thing is, it's okay to visit dark places, but you can't stay there. Right. So there were certainly tons of moments where you get into a hole, but I saw other people that would, you know, get there and then stay there and say, okay, you know, fixed mindset. This is going to be my life from this point forward. And, That's obviously not going to get you out of there. And then another thing is just to try and have fun as hard as it can be. Um, You know, when I was in the ICU and I couldn't move at all, you can still smile. You can still laugh. You know, being a quadriplegic didn't take that away from me. And that was a huge part of the process. And really all the friends and family that showed up, you know, again, kind of gave me that strength to realize that you've got a lot to live for.
1: How about spirituality and your faith? How did that factor in?
2: Quite a bit. I mean, the last 30 seconds that I had underwater, you know, I was very grateful for the life that I'd had and the friends and family and experiences that I'd had. But you also had to turn to that moment and say, okay, you know, this could be it. And if I'm about to interview at the pearly gates, I hope this goes well and that I've been decent enough. There were definitely times where I leaned on faith and sermons to pull me out of holes. You know, if you're just commuting to a rehab or having a tough day and and tapped into that quite a bit. There were tons of moments along the way. I eventually got into traveling after I was able to move and, you know, not only get out of a bed and get out the front door, but get out of the country and had this moment that sounds kind of scripted, but I was traveling through Africa and visited the Cape of Good Hope and it's a cloudy day and I'm sort of there by myself and all of a sudden this massive hole opens up in the clouds and the sun just comes bursting through and this sort of incredible sunset was there that I got to experience all alone and and it was a lot of forgiveness and gratitude and you know things that had just happened at that time.
0: You said earlier on too that when the accident actually happened your friend said that there was some force or some guidance that came to them. Yes. Were you thinking there was some other energy there? Is that what you were saying?
2: Those were his words, not mine. So he felt that he was guided from above and he had had zero instruction as a lifeguard or anything. Maybe he was in a previous life, but um, he claims that he had no idea what to do and yet did all the right things of stabilizing me keeping keep him in the water and not dragging you out.
0: Yeah. Like you said, all these miracles that were happening along the way. Correct. It sounds like you were so open to a lot of them and actually creating the miracles. Oftentimes, and maybe you've heard this change the way you look at things and things you look at change and therein lies the miracle. And it sounds like you kind of did that and and are doing that, you know?
2: Yes. It requires a lot of open-mindedness. It requires a lot of ability to you know, forgive yourself also, too. And it's that you, you made a mistake or things didn't go your way or whatever, but you still need to be able to give yourself that clean slate.
0: So, when you're with other people that have had this accident or this happened to them in some way, what is the advice you give them? I mean, do you do a one, two, three, or what do you say?
2: I try to be helpful finding resources. It really has an incredible power to put me back to that initial place where I was. You speak with people that are in intensive care, trying to make their way in the inpatient rehab and it gives you this huge power to put whatever's going on in your life back in context. You know, it is a journey of a million steps and there's this Spanish phrase that I really like, um, pero paso, which means without rushing, but without stopping. And, you know, keep moving the ball forward, but it's not going to happen overnight for you, right? This is, you're not going to go from zero to 60 in one second. You have to keep building and building and building.
1: What do you do when you get to feel down?
2: Exercise is a huge one. You can move. And so that helps. And then plugging into something, learning something, you know, any sort of pathway where you can get out and move your body or move your mind is a great way to get out of a funk.
0: You said you were open to all kinds of different things. Have you changed the way you eat? Are you into understanding the importance of building muscle, all that? Like, has it made you an expert in that field as well?
2: Definitely. You're continuously learning. I need to rely on trainers because you can't fully teach yourself, but one the lines that one of my doctors used, I love is the point of therapy is not to stay in therapy. And one of the ways that you can get yourself out of that is to continuously learn. So whether it's, you know, psychotherapy and mental health or physical therapy and what to do with your body, it's I think very important to your progress to learn along the way and not just be taking direction. And then, yes, I take much better care of myself. I think I was always in great shape, but I was doing, you know, kind of the work hard, play hard. And um, living that life in New York City. And, and it's certainly very important to me to eat well, exercise, and you feel great every day.
1: So Mike, what are you focused on now? And what do you see yourself doing in the next five years? Yes, yeah,
2: so you come out of that two-year period of just putting your body together. And all of a sudden, the aperture opens quite a bit, right? Where you can, you know, get back to your life and travel and be around your friends and have all these things available to you. And I took a pretty experimental approach at the beginning of going back and consulting and working in the private equity field. And that was great and really got the muscles moving again with my financial skill set. Loved that. I did a ton of writing and really focused on sharing this story. I think there's so many positive things that come every time that I just step out and talk about what's gone on and have been able to help a lot of people in that way. So that's been a focus. And then also just getting out and continuing to meet people in this kind of post-COVID world and experiment with what you can find out there and open to taking, you know, opportunities in the startup world or going and creating something and seeing what I can build from here forward. So kind of being open-minded, but also using my skill set of storytelling, investing and all those things that I've built.
0: Do you live in New York now? Or are you back in New
1: York?
2: I do. So I've held on to the same apartment that I've had since the beginning of the accident. I actually moved in about a month beforehand. And then I sort of held onto it as a place to return home to in a North star. And then COVID struck and you're sort of stuck on the road. But again, it was a place to keep in mind to return home to someday. And then I found that warmer climates were really helpful when I was doing my rehab. And then I spent a good part of you know, this past year sort of traveling the world and went to Africa and the Middle East and Europe and really all over. And then I've just recently returned home.
0: Did you travel alone?
2: I chose a lot of locations alone, but I met people along the way in most circumstances. And so I started in South Africa and met people I'd never encountered before. And then went on this five-day hike where I met people and sort of survived in the wilderness all alone. And set up to Tanzania and had to have this sort of very wacky journey by car with a retired policeman across borders and stuff because it's COVID and all the flights are canceled. And then eventually met some friends, you know, two days in a fender bender later and saw the great migration in the middle of COVID without any human presence. And yeah, I had all these spectacular journeys visiting family in Lebanon and just kept it going because, um, you know, I seized that moment where, Right before I left, I had this drink with a friend on 7th Avenue in New York City. And, you know, we were still doing the outdoor bar thing. And I said, you know what, this is going to be the first time I'm about to do something I never could have done before my accident. And so that was pretty meaningful to me.
0: Yeah. And you couldn't have done it because you were working, you were busy.
2: Way too busy with work. Exactly. Preoccupied. And you'd always had this dream of, you know, I'd love to go see all these things and experiences out there. And now all of a sudden you had worked for two years and had the opportunity to do it. And it was a no-brainer to decide to go for it.
0: That adventure spirit in you is palatable. <laughs> I mean, wow. <laughs>
2: yeah. I think it runs in the family. We've had a few of those in generations past. And um, I guess I'm just carrying on the tradition.
1: Well, that, and I think it's what's gotten you through all of
2: it. Yeah. You sort of need to embrace it as an adventure. You can say, you know, this is arduous and awful and- There were certainly many, many points where I did where I was just exhausted and don't want to continue anymore. But if you're willing and able to see the beauty in it, you know, you can learn quite a bit. And I've experienced so much because of it.
1: If there's one great thing that came out of this, what would you say it was?
2: I would say the change in perspective. And that is sort of, you know, the million dollar question that everyone asks at cocktail parties that, um, you know, I was really unable to answer for a very long time. And it's tough because you can't torture that. But I think for me, it became a mentality that if you can kind of face every day with equal parts, courage and gratitude, you know, you're only going to start from where you are, right? Wherever this, whenever this recording's over, we're going on to the next thing from right here. And so you have to be grateful, even if you're in the ICU, if you're in a terrible place, or you just went through something that was the worst event of your life, that's your starting point. So you have to be grateful for what's there, because there's always some bit of positive around you. And you just have to see it. And then you have to actually have the courage to seize it, whether it's going through pain or through, you know, some kind of mental difficulty or putting in the extra rep and a set of weights at the gym or whatever. That's what's going to get you to where you need to be. And again, it's kind of that power to just put things back in context.
1: What's your pain level now?
2: Pretty significant. It changes day to day. But I mean, I I feel like, you know, I've had a hundred year career in the NFL or something. Um, You know, you wake up every day and you're hurting. and It's interesting because people don't see that on the outside. You know, um, people look at you and say, oh, you got a big smile and you look great. And, you know, it's not fun conversation to talk about being in pain, but it, it's there and you feel it. And it's real. And it's just something that you have to work through as as a lot of people have invisible stuff they're working through.
1: How do you manage it?
2: Advil and exercise. So one of the key things for me is just to stay moving and stick to my regimen, to stretch, to train, because if you don't stick to those things, it just becomes worse.
0: What causes the pain?
2: The nerve damage, still lingering spinal cord damage.
0: Is that eventually going to go away or do they even talk about that? Or do the doctors bring that up?
2: We don't talk about it, but probably not.
0: Yeah. yeah gotcha,
2: <laughs> I know, gotcha. we, we do, but it's just a fact of life for me now. And it's just something that you learn to live with. And you say, okay, I need to go do my yoga. I need to go to the gym. I need to, you know, get up and stand and it changes your life. But you also don't have the choice of just making it go away, right? right. It's not gonna leave because you want it to.
0: And have you tried cold baths? And I mean, have you been doing a lot of that stuff?
2: Everything helps, cold baths, steam showers, you know, whatever, um, acupuncture, you you throw everything you can at it. And it's, again, you know, it's not going to be cured, but you manage it the best that you can.
0: So do you have your five-year plan or is it you're back into your life now? It sounds like, right.
2: You're back into your life now. So I did take that time to go, you know, travel and see the world. And there may be a few more of those adventures on the way for me. And then, you know, you get back into the financial industry. Sure. That's my bread and butter. And I love building and creating things and investing and meeting people and, you get to a point where you crave and need that again. And then, you know, you do want to create the same kind of loving family that I grew up with and have that same experience to repeat and people to go through your life with. But you need to be much more focused on process and not just outcomes as well. And so those are sort of the ingredients that I want.
0: Wow, you are so impressive, Mike. I mean, in so many different ways. So thank you for sharing this story with us. I mean, incredible. Just incredible. Thanks a ton for having me on.
1: Oh, it's great. And this podcast is going to help so many people. So thank you for sharing all of this.
2: I hope so. There's one thing that I would love to add sharing stories does really help people in a way that I never thought I could have. I mean, when I first started writing updates and just sending them by email to friends and family, you know, I got a bunch of praise for it and everyone loved it it certainly was a pick-me-up for a lot of people. And then about six months went by and I got an email in my inbox and opened it up and it was another family friend that said, Hey, you know, we just want you to know somebody read this and use the resources that you did. And they're not walking again, unassisted after being paralyzed for five years from a stroke. And so you never know the positive things that come from putting your story out there. And, you know, I'd, Be grateful for any opportunity to continue doing that.
0: And, and, you know, it's something Dora and I talk a lot about is that we kind of all are interconnected. We're all together in this world that we're in. So it's important that we all share our stories and also tell the stories, you know, be able to tell the story the way you tell your story.
2: Connection is key. It brought me the resources I needed. It brought me the energy I needed. It's, you know, another thing that really helps with this sort of, you know, post survival stage is helping other people. And so whether it's raising money or helping advise people, it really can give you a sense of mastery of, okay, I've come out the other side of this and can actually use my expertise to help others. So that's a big part of what I want to focus on going forward as well.
0: Thank you. And hopefully you can come back on. We would love to have you anytime, right, Dora? Yep.
1: Anytime. Thank you.